G'day and welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. This is episode 819, my interview with Eric Topol and his book, Deep Medicine. I hope you enjoy. G'day ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another interview on the Hidden Why podcast. I hope you're very well and thank you for tuning in to this episode. This is my interview with Eric Topol and he is the Executive Vice President of the Scripps Research He's also a professor of molecular medicine and the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. He's published many articles, over a thousand peer-reviewed articles, and he's also published a few books, and that's what we're discussing today, his newest book called Deep Medicine. So we really talk about how uh, AI and tech can really help make the healthcare industry human once again, which I think is, is fundamentally what it's all about. And as Eric explains, you know, 40 years ago, it was definitely a different game than it is today. So he discusses with me, you know, what led to its destruction, I suppose you'd say, and how we can use tech and AI to really revamp and restore the industry. And we talk about, you know, what it's going to mean to educate the future doctors. Is there going to be a need for doctors? How doctors are going to be involved if AI is really taking control of analyzing data and, and creating diagnoses, etc.? So there's a lot in the conversation. It's probably a lot more an in-depth topic than we discuss here, but certainly on surface level, it's very insightful and um, hopefully will inspire you to pick up the book and, and create a deeper understanding for the medical industry. I think it's a pretty important topic. So guys, I hope you enjoy. As always, please leave your comments and let us know what you think. G'day, Eric. Welcome to the Hidden Wild Podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks very much, Lee. Good to be with you. Now, Eric, you've got a significant amount of work behind you, um, research. Um, you've had many years' experience in the field um, that you work in, but tell us a little bit about yourself. I've, I've given a bit of a pre-ramble in the introduction to this episode, but um, what what is your work, uh, Eric, and, and what is it all about? Well, I'm a heart specialist, a cardiologist, and have been for over three decades. Along the way, uh, I've been involved with uh, genetics and uh, sensors and all the different things that we can use to help understand a human being at levels that previously were not possible. So uh, a lot of research on top of um, involvement of caring for patients. Yeah, okay. What um, I mean, looking at the, the previous three books that you've written, um, you've got The Creative Destruction of Medicine, The Patient Will See You Now, and your new book, Deep Medicine, um, which is why I reached out to you, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. Um, I mean, this, these three books in particular um, are really looking at how um, technology, I suppose, can shift the way medicine is currently practiced. Is that sort of the right perspective? Yes, uh, Lee, I think that's kind of the basis, uh, but I think the most important, the most far-reaching part of this thing is about getting uh, the patient-doctor relationship restored because that's been hurt, that's been seriously eroding for decades. And so a lot of people might not think that technology could enhance humanity, and they think of it as depersonalizing and detracting from the human bond and this is of course uh, an opportunity to leverage uh, and even exploit technology to get us where we need to be and um, all over the world there's serious problems of uh, doctor and clinician burnout uh, and uh, really a, a pretty serious dissatisfaction 
yeah. at the level of uh, uh, distraction, lack of real care in healthcare. Okay. So the the book Deep Medicine. Uh, builds on the fact that we are moving to more digital, more democratized, that is, you know, a level playing field where patients are taking on more charge. But the most important thing is that we get this restoring uh, the patient-doctor relationship. Hmm. Because at one point, 30 or 40 years ago and prior to that uh, juncture, it was precious. It was uh, centered on trust and presence and it was a go-to person that was uh, extraordinarily important mm. uh, that isn't the case for most patients today it appears like it's become very transactional so what i was saying is that um it seems like the industry at the moment is very transactional so you're saying 40 years ago it was very much about the doctor human relationship patient relationship and and i guess the the benefits of that relationship were certainly aligned with with the ultimate goal of, of having a practitioner is to improve our health and, and help us in that respects. Um, what is the like? What is, what do you what 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 happened? Where did we go wrong? Right. Well, really important point. So, somewhere around 1980, at least we can trace it back in the United States. Uh, it's probably similar in many other countries. Uh, medicine became a big business. Hmm. Uh, what happened was uh, instead of the patient being in the center, um, the uh, squeeze started to happen. See more patients, less time with each patient, and lots of things were done. Uh, the latest hit was the electronic health record, and these were not done with any regard for doctors or patients, but rather for billing purposes in, in the United States. Uh, and in many other places. So what happened was that doctors became data clerks and keyboards became uh, omnipresent in uh, exam rooms, in in clinic uh, visits. And that led to um, this separation without often even eye contact between patients and their doctors, no less nurses and, and many other types of clinicians. So there's been a series of major hits, but the the big business uh, side of this is largely what accounts for the degradation. Okay, so big business and profiteering, that sort of thing. Right, right, exactly. And it's worse in the U.S. because of like not having this um, civil right of every every citizen having health care as a as a human right that so it, it's it's worse here but uh, in my work uh for example with the uh uk's national health service where i was commissioned over the past uh, couple of years to help uh, review it's present there and i i suspect it's also present in australia yeah yeah so with that transition big business getting involved i mean we're still seeing doctors patients are still checking in making appointments um, I don't do that too much, thankfully, at this stage, um, but certainly have had experiences where it's, it, it is quite, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, it's not pleasant, I suppose. Um, they make the, some of the, the, the uh, venues these days a bit nicer, so that's pleasant, but you're still booking in and you're waiting and, and you know, and then it's a quick visit and you're in and out, um, prescribe some medicine and, you know, hopefully that will help fix you. The problem with big business getting involved is a big is it about 
being over-medicated or is it about no longer connecting with the patients and really understanding what the health issues are? Yeah, well, it's a combination of those things. Uh, what has especially happened in, in recent times, besides this lack of connection, uh, the limited time and uh, the interference, distraction with keyboards, the common enemy of both patients and doctors. But what's happened is that there's more data for each person than ever before. Yeah. So there's this electronic health record, which is lots of data. But in addition to that, you know, now we have added data from sensors, uh, from uh, genomes, uh, gut microbiome, you know, lots of different data points that previously uh, it, it's, it, you know, it's a flood, uh, lab tests, the scans. And it's very hard for any doctor to get their arms around all that data. Right. Now, that, I mean, that data would be beneficial, isn't it? Like the more data we have, isn't that the better well, the diagnosis can be? Right. So now you're bringing up the era of artificial intelligence because no human being is really able to deal with all this data, especially as it continues to explode uh, in, in size and in dimensions. So that's why we need to, to train machines to take on that onerous task, which they are especially equipped to do far better than humans. So that's where the field is headed as a rescue, uh, because it's becoming increasingly impossible. It takes time to do that. That, that is to review all the, the, the pages of data and scans and labs and whatnot. Uh, and it's, it's really not possible. Uh, mm. It's not the wheelhouse of, of people, doctors and experts. So there's a transition that's happening right now to, to make this uh, uh, outsourcing to machines uh, and also getting rid of keyboards, by the way, uh, okay. using voice recognition. Yeah, that's powerful, isn't it? That's the future. Mm-hmm. So what? So what we're doing is is essentially allowing AI to really make diagnosis and allowing humans to really influence how that AI operates and, and diagnosis our patients. Well, you you wouldn't uh, except for. Uh, very common and simple things that are not serious. You wouldn't want to rely on the AI to make the diagnosis, but to kind of tee it up so that you'd have uh, oversight uh, by a, a doctor or uh, some other uh, clinician that's working with a doctor. Uh, the point being there is that uh, you don't want to trust anything serious just to an algorithm. Right. Uh, you know, if it's something common and not uh, at all life-threatening, you know, like a urinary tract infection or a ear infection or a skin rash, those things could probably, and they will go eventually doctorless, you know, just with an AI uh, tool. But most things require um, oversight to make the diagnosis. So, uh, you know, what you're getting from the algorithm or the AI neural network is a preliminary uh, diagnosis or an interpretation yeah. subject to human oversight. Can you give us, um, and I think the, the reliance on algorithms is becoming more and more paramount, and not only in the medicine, medical industry, but in everything we do. I'm in real estate myself, and I certainly see algorithms about property prices, and then people rely on that. They think that's just how it is, and, and really there's a lot more than just a, an algorithm of a property price. And I assume it's similar than, than medicine. It still needs 
uh, human level of interpretation and um, uh, influence, I suppose, in the end, end result. What, what have you got a, a, a couple of case studies maybe that you could share that would contextualize um, how this AI is helping um, in the field of diagnosing patients? Well, let me just give one that isn't necessarily diagnosing patients, but it will give uh, listeners the picture really uh, quickly. Yeah. So the retina, uh, you know, the back of the eye uh, where the sensory um, neural tissue that lets us see. Yeah. So if you take a picture of that and you show it to the world's leading experts of the retina, and you say, is this picture of the retina from a man or a woman? And the chance of them getting that right is 50-50. Okay. But you can, treat, you can train a machine with hundreds of thousands of retinal pictures, and their accuracy of telling if it's a man or a woman is 97 98%. Hmm. And so the point I'm trying to get across is that we can train AI um, algorithms to see things that humans can't see and will never see. Uh, and there's so many other examples like that. So another so one... See things it, quickly and, and yeah. It, it, the, the basic, because they can pick up the pixels that humans can't, at, you know, the resolution and numbers of pixels and features. Yeah. We can't... We, if, if we were shown... Uh, 100,000 images, we would go to sleep. I mean, we, we couldn't, we couldn't. So the difference here is humans have early satiety of data and machines uh, for deep learning have insatiable hunger. They're, they're autodidactic. They just get better and better with more data. Mm. Uh, patterns, especially. That's the sweet spot. So one other example is... Um, colonoscopy you you probably haven't had that procedure but it's not a pleasant one and you don't want to go through it hmm. with all the prep and you know having this um, uh, scope put up your colon uh, and and then find out that it missed things which it typically does and it's not it it's the doctor the gastroenterologist but now there's been a randomized trial which showed that with AI you don't miss these little uh, polyps that could be precancerous. So this is a theme that is improving the accuracy by taking advantage of this exquisite machine recognition of, of patterns, of, of images, and also of speech. Well, so accuracy and, and pace of, of AIs is certainly a benefit in that regards. Yeah, I mean, I think the way it's getting more quickly uh, brought into the everyday practice of medicine is in scans, medical scans, like CAT scans and plain x-rays and magnetic resonance images and all the different types of scans, ultrasound. And there, radiologists miss, they have a false negative, they miss 30% of findings. Um, and you can get that down to single digit and hopefully it never be zero, but hopefully very low numbers with the with the booster um, power of using machines that are trained. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What is it, what are the risks here? I mean if we're relying on these machines to really make those accurate assessments in a quicker pace, does it 
is there is there a risk of oh, oh there's no shortage complacent yeah there's no shortage of risk well you're mentioning one which is that's a theoretical one which is that the doctors wouldn't pay close attention and whatever the initial interpretation is they might just accept it and that's not good of course but the other parts to the story are what about if an algorithm is subject to malware you know that's that can happen and that would be a very serious matter potentially because you know when a doctor makes a mistake that might be affecting one patient but when you have an algorithm that's widely used and uh, it's it goes uh, south it's been infected yeah uh, it, it could hurt a lot of people really quickly um, in addition to that, um, you know, like anything else, this is software that can get a glitch in it without even uh, some type of uh, deliberate um, uh, hacking. Is that easy to detect these sort of glitches and, and malwares and stuff? Well, you know, we haven't really seen uh, that. Their hope is that it will be detectable and there yeah. would be. But, but frankly, um, because it's still in the early days, early era of AI implementation. You know, we don't know. Yep. So th there's lots of things about this, uh, like, you know, making inequities worse, making uh, the embedded bias of humans, not necessarily the the, alg the algorithm itself. Um, you know, there, there, there there's many things that could go wrong here. That's why um, it's really vital that we now let down our guard and even when they are approved by regulatory bodies in countries and they have data that's proven, you know, validation trials that are published, they still could go wrong in the implementation. And so we have to keep our eye on them and under tight surveillance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there's definitely going to be some, some risk involved, but the overall benefits hopefully will outweigh that. And I think technology is obviously here to stay and we can we need to appreciate that. So it's just about uh, obviously risk minimization and understanding those risks. I, I would guess is that sound sound correct? Yeah, I know everything and everything is a benefit risk ratio. There's there's nothing I know in medicine uh, that is risk free, mm. literally. Uh, even if you think of water, if you drink over drink water, you can have intoxication. It could be very serious. There's nothing that's uh, without risk. But you want to mitigate that risk and, you know, accept things where the, there's overriding benefit. And there has a look of AI providing overriding benefit, but we don't ever want to, you know, accept that too readily. Yeah, yeah, it sort of seems like, uh, you know, self-driving cars and, um, you know, the great benefits there. But, um, yeah, who knows what the risks are. I mean, there's probably huge risks. What... Um, well, the self-driving car is an important analogy, uh, Lee, that that's the most uh, advanced pinnacle achievement of AI to date hmm. because, you know, it's, it's bringing in enormous amounts of data on a continuous basis from uh, radar and UDAR and hundreds of sensors, no less um, the, uh, the road, the, the uh, traffic and everything else. So what, What's really important here is that we've now learned that despite all the hype about self-driving cars, they'll never be truly self-driving all the time. There's going to be road conditions that are not right. There's going to be um, the uh, weather that is uh, 
really not acceptable to have a self-driving car operate. And that's just like medicine. In fact, medicine is going to be even less autonomous because there are certain things that you could do without a doctor, but most things are going to require that human doctor backup. And so um, there's lots of parallels. Uh, I, I, mm. I got into that quite a bit in the Deep Medicine book because we can learn self-driving car technology is much further along than medical AI. Yeah. And so you can learn from the missteps about how in the early days of self-driving car work, uh, there was this idea that, you know, that's, that's going to replace all cars and it's going to work with no human backup ever. And we've had a wake-up call that that's never going to happen. Hmm. Never going to happen. No, we'll have self-driving cars in certain conditions, uh, you know, certain roads and certain, um, you know, uh, weather, uh, but not all the time. It's what's called level four. Hmm. Um, level five of the Society of Automotive Engineers is what initially was hyped up that we we're going to get there. And, you know, you, you'd never see anybody driving their car ever again. Well, no, that's not going to happen. And in medicine, it's a lot of similarities. It's even less um, advanced ever projected. You know, I'm thinking we, we probably won't get past, you know, level three, which is most things are going to require uh, oversight, human oversight. Yeah. Because you don't want to trust your health. Um, where, when it's a serious matter to an algorithm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what I was going to ask. Like with, with AI becoming so paramount in, in the medical industry, um, and I've already said, and, and I've been told off before for doing this, but I know a lot of people that I, um, you know, friends and family, etc., they rely on, um, you know, the digital technology we have and the information uh, online to sort of self-diagnose. Now with AI coming in, um, potentially that will have a lot of people um, diagnosing and medicating, treating themselves without the interaction of a doctor, just the interaction of their phone or, you know, some app or something like that to treat themselves. Is that an issue going forward or is that something that you see is, is quite beneficial? Well, there is going to be that. I mean, now already in the UK, you can go to a, a, a pharmacy drugstore and get an AI kit for diagnosing your urinary tract infection. And you can also get an antibiotic that's uh, linked to the output from that uh, AI kit. And the same is starting to uh, occur for ear infections in children. So we're going to start seeing most of the common non-serious things where there's a doctorless path. Yes. That it's, uh, and I think that's good because that's yet another way that we get this gift of time, which mm. is what it's all about. If we can get time back for patients and doctors... Yeah, doctors for time to think and process everything and and cue in and listen to patients and get the human factor, you know, re rebooted, which has been largely lost. If we can do that, um, that requires this, you know, multi pronged uh, a strategy that we mentioned the keyboards, we mentioned the machines teeing up and kind of ingesting all a person's data to help get it all ready. To, to review so it doesn't take very much time until all organized and pristine, ideally. And then another one is getting more charged to patients. You know, that's that democratization where they can do more. And then another, yet another is that they are generating their own data. And all that data is being continually processed. And they have a virtual medical coach 
So that is a really exciting uh, area that's getting developed now, you know, just in certain conditions like diabetes. But eventually it'll be a general medical coach to help prevent conditions that a person might otherwise be at risk to develop. Okay. Well, explain this to me, the medical coach thing. Yeah, well, it's a big, exciting area. Sounds so, exciting. Yeah, you you have the uh, uh, your, with your phone or your smart speaker. If you have that, you you have all your data is getting ingested, um, and that includes everything from your past, your medical health history. Hmm. Uh, it could be your genome. Uh, and, and everything about you know whatever labs you've had and whatever uh, if you had uh, any sensors that you're wearing or have worn that could be your glucose it could be your steps it could be your sleep it could be you know your heart rhythm so all these different data uh, sources are u- united into this um, deep learning algorithm for you hmm. and in addition to that it has all the medical literature up to the moment. Yeah. And that's in 2 million papers a year that are being published. Yeah. Uh, but the ones that are relevant to you. And so all this data, you know, your gut microbiome, everything is in there and it's just getting updated how's all the time. It, sorry, how's it all getting in, input? Like, is it just yeah. tracking us when we're sleeping, when we're awake? Are we plugged in? Yeah. Right. So whenever you have a sensor on, it's automatically getting ingested, right? Okay. Anytime you have an interaction for health, let's say you you just had your genome sequence and it just gets ingested. I mean, you would control it, what would go in, but, you know, it would be as seamless as you want. Hmm. Uh, Like for diabetes, what's being started to happen now is, you know, it's having your glucoses. A lot of people are now wearing glucose sensors particularly those who are taking insulin. And so it's sensing your glucose, let's say, every five minutes, your sleep, your steps, that your, your physical activity, um, your level of stress, like your heart rate as, a, as an indicator. Uh, and you can even take a picture of your food, and with AI it will pretty accurately determine what, you, what you're eating and how many calories and what type of, whether it's carbohydrate, fat, protein. So it's then advising the person with diabetes, you know, what you haven't um, slept well in the last four days and your glucose is reflecting that or you're, you haven't been walking. You know, so it's giving you coaching about better um, control or management of your condition. And that's going to go broadly right. for all and you know that's what is getting built now it's not ready Hmm. but it's you know you're going to see this happening over the next five years and it's it's a pretty exciting thing because it's not for everyone but for people who are more kind of data oriented and uh want to have this feedback uh you know you already have it today with things like google uh, assistant and certain apps that you you use uh if if you happen to use them to help you in your day-to-day life um, yeah. Now, you know, this is just now for your health. And uh, we're now able to define risk of, a, of various conditions in a granular way more than ever before. So the dream here is to actually prevent illnesses, yeah. conditions before they ever happen. Yeah, well, it could be as simple as, you know, just um, understanding your vitals every day and, and you know, potential minerals or 
vitamins that you might be lacking and, and it might be a case of then just uh, dosing up on those and, and bringing back some, some balance. Yeah, ideally you'd like to avoid medications and, uh, you know, there's a chapter in the book about the individualized diet, you yeah. know, this diet and that's your food is medicine has been a dream that we never had a chance to really get at. But now we can actually tell, you know, what foods in any given individual are causing, you know, serious glucose spikes or abnormal markers like triglycerides, you know, the fatty lipids in our blood. Yeah. So the, the fact that we could fashion, you know, a bespoke diet for an individual, that would, hmm. you know, that's, that, it, we're not there yet either, but we already are seeing remarkable progress. And it's only because of AI, because there's so much data and includes the gut microbiome, all the different bacteria that you, that are your co-inhabitants in your, in your gut. And, you know, the, the amount of data that we're generating now, terabytes of data uh, a day. Uh, so you can't, no, no person could interpret that. And that's why we're finally cracking the case about what should you eat for you. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Where does this, um, I mean, this, this could all advance fairly rapidly. Do you have a, a vision of, uh, you know, and I guess your experience too, of how, how rapidly this could come into play and, and advance? Well, that's funny you ask because, you know, I tend to always think it's going to happen sooner than it really does. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's why if I say five years, you might want to double it. No, but I, I think it's the reason it doesn't happen sooner is not because the technology is the holdup. It's the reluctance of the medical community. The resistance, right? Hmm. I mean, it's change, and change doesn't go over well. And particularly here, because you're challenging control of doctors who have been used to and largely enjoyed control. And so that their autonomy is challenged by giving more charge to the patients, more responsibility. But if we're smart, we'll embrace that because not only will patients be happier, those who want to take on that uh, that responsibility, but it'll just decompress the workload. And as as we on this planet keep, you know, we're aging, and we're also getting more complicated because we, as we age, we get more conditions and more to look after. So everything about this is not going to get better until we start to figure out ways to make the lives of, of doctors and, and, you know, give more responsibility to patients and to machines, it would get a better uh, balance of doing that. We, we haven't done that yet. We have largely not entrusted machines or patients to take on more responsibility. Mm. Yeah, and I, I suppose it's about um, minimizing that resistance uh, for everyone involved. And I, I suppose there's a lot of different implications there, you know, jobs and job loss and income and all that sort of thing as well, because obviously with the introduction or the the increase of AI and tech involved in diagnosing and assisting in that respect, that's going to reduce the cost, I would assume, too, of, of treatment and medication and all that sort of thing. It certainly has that potential, yes. I mean, we have to see it all proven, but at least theoretically it does. A lot of things in medicine, though, over the years have had a look of, oh, well, this could lower costs, and then they never really did. So we're not starting out, you know, on solid footing, but there's yeah. still a lot of promise. So looking at the subtitle of the book, How AI Can Make Healthcare Human Again, 
Um, and again, I'm, I'm sort of looking at this and thinking, wow, I mean, the technology is there and it looks like it could come fairly quick to a point where um, we need less and less interaction with, with doctors. Um, how is it about then changing the, the nature of the doctor-patient relationship and what doctors are there to assist with? Or is it is it changing the whole landscape? Is it making it sort of irrelevant and making a new um, field of doctors? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think what it's really interesting here is that uh, it, it, it is the back to basics. You know, it's like back to the future, uh, <laughs> where it's not it's not really it, it's just get this gift of time, which we talked about is derived from many. Um, uh, tools of AI that uh, we already discussed. So when you get time, then you start to get, you know, presence. Uh, when you meet trust that you build, uh, you can listen to a patient. Typically today, it's around the world, the patient is interrupted within seconds. 18 seconds is the average. Right. So you can't really tell your story. And you're never going to digitize a person's life story because that means not just taking time to listen, but, you know, the, all the nonverbal communication, understanding what that person is really worried about. Oftentimes they, they make their own diagnosis if you just let them talk. Yeah. So this is the human side of medicine, which is its essence. And we just got to get back to that. But what we've gotten, you know, uh, ironically, we've gotten more robotic because we don't have time to think to interact uh, and to develop this sense of empathy, you know, the exuding empathy, compassion, care. So the, the, the term healthcare has largely become a joke because it's, it's not care. I mean, the, the, the sense that you have a doctor that truly cares for you when you have less than 10 minutes of time to interact, hmm. um, that, that, that doesn't go over very well for most patients. I mean, Getting roughed up uh, is a common problem, and that's largely because of time. You know, most doctors and nurses and, you know, pharmacists and physical therapists, I mean, all the people, the paramedics, all the people that went into healthcare, they they, they went in to help take care of patients. Hmm. And the problem is, is that they can't do it, and that's the burnout problem, which is a global epidemic. Okay. Uh, so if we just start getting back time and the human factor, the human touch, and everything could start falling into place. And there was one health system in the U.S. that piloted a program where the doctor and patient couldn't leave the room for 40 minutes. Hmm. And it was amazing. The, the, <laughs> the patients loved it. The doctors loved it. And if we could just start with that, we'll be in good shape. So really, you see the transition here going back to the, the fundamentals of human-human, human-to-human relationships as, as, as it relates to um, our health. Right. So, you know, in, in, in the book about deep empathy, when I got into this point about machines are just going to get smarter. Yeah. You know, now they're taking on narrow tasks and they're just going to get broader. And when they get smarter, we've got to get more human. That's mm. what's wrong here. Yeah. So if, if we can do that, we can make medicine a whole lot better. Absolutely. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. What, um, I did have a question there and I've just lost it. 
in regards to anyway it's gone now um so pretty exciting stuff going forward uh for healthcare ai um what are your thoughts about um medication and and how ai might influence that like is is medication a problem are we over medicated yes we are over medicated but there's a lot of implications of that um not only are we taking too many medicines, but we're often taking the wrong medicines. Mm. That's our DNA interactions, our genome interactions with a specific medicine, they're, they're usually not even assessed. Yeah. Rarely are they assessed. And then the other thing is that the more medicines you take, the more chance there are for interactions that are not anticipated Yeah. Uh, or not uh, really carefully reviewed. So. This is where having uh, AI go through a list of medicines that any person's taking to detect interactions, that, that's a really easy one. Mm. Uh, that, that's kind of uh, the basics. But what we want to do going forward is the recommendations for a medicine and the recommendations for g- getting rid of medicines could help be uh, augmented through um, these algorithms. So. You know, that's an area that there's a, a, a major interest because medical errors for, from medications are profound in, in numbers. And if we just get our act together here with the help of um, the these tools, it should really make a difference. Mm, okay. Um, and just jumping back for a sec to um, burnout, you talked about a, a global issue here of of. Um, burnout. What what is what are the issue? Can you give us a bit of insight into that? Yeah, so it's a uh, a bust of morale. It's a sense of despair, deep despair. Uh, the in the continuum, of course, is not not only are more than half of doctors uh, suffering from burnout. Uh, you know, the feeling of not able to cope in their in their job in their profession. Uh, but also of the, of 20% of doctors are clinically depressed and the rate of suicides is the highest it's ever been in the history of the profession. Wow. The other story about that, Lee, is that uh, with burnout, there's a doubling of medical errors. Yeah. So then you have this vicious cycle because you're, you're already, you know, got a whole a very negative sense about your worth and yourself and your ability to execute your 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 responsibilities and then you have an error hmm. and, and then you get even worse yep. in terms of this so we have to break this up and you know this is something that if we don't get doctors away from being data clerks and get them back the time it takes to care for patients then we're not going to fix this burnout problem. So what what will the I suppose if if technology is really uh, assisting us greatly with interpreting data and um, and analysing um, health issues to a high degree of levels, I su- I feel that the and again I I've never been trained as a doctor so I don't know what the education is like but I, I suppose that the education. Um, of the industry will change rapidly as well. Yeah, no, I've I've really called for some serious relook of how we select future doctors, and, and the reason for that is 
you know, we, we don't really need brainiacs. No. You know, we don't need the people with the highest test scores and the best, um, you know, college grade point averages. And what we really need are the people who are the most uh, empathetic, you know, the best communicators, the ones with the highest emotional intelligence. Uh, because in the future, a lot of the AI um, uh, support will really take on some of the things that are uh, what the brainiacs are doing now. Uh, yeah. So, hmm. you know, we really want to start to get more uh, serious about who uh, are the doctors of the future. And they're not going to be the doctors of the past, at least the selection criteria. And we need to put much more thought into uh, promoting this human uh, empathy, uh, the ability to the humanists among us, the young people. Yes, that'll be more about educating and training the regards of, of human management or yeah, human interaction yeah. and relationships and all that sort of thing. And I suppose yeah. it's looking at how the role is going to shift and then training in that regards. Yeah, I mean, it, is, it isn't to say they don't need to be sharp and be able to no. have oversight of, of the medical aspects of things, but it's it's not going to be nearly as important uh, going forward. Mm. So going back to the book, um, Deep Medicine, why did you write the book and what do you hope the readers will sort of uh, take away from the book or achieve from reading the book? Well, you know, the reason I wrote it is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Lee, I had these two prior books, you know, one that talked about how we can digitize you know, all the aspects in medicine uh, to make it far more efficient and catch up with the rest of the world. Uh but we're still far behind, and the only thing that's really been digitized uh, to a big extent has been an abject failure of the electronic health records, which are uh, largely a, a mess. But then the, the next was you know, to democratize and give patients power, and that's that patients will see you now. But then, you know, having worked on those two prior books for several years, um, I started to wonder, well, now we're co- collecting all this data. And what are we doing with it? It's mainly just hoarding and storing it. Mm. And finally, we have a way to deal with data uh, in, in, in a striking way. And, I, you know, I would say, spending three years of research to do this book, that I came across the, the sense that this is the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my, you know, three-plus decades of uh, practicing medicine and, and, and as a researcher. Because the opportunities here are unparalleled, perhaps for many generations, perhaps ever, mm. in terms of how it can help not just the speed and the accuracy and the, uh, the productivity and the workflow, all these things that we need help because, you know, as it is today, healthcare is not very efficient. But most importantly, getting back um, this, this human connection that I think that is the far-reaching thing. But, you know, there's a lot of things that are going to be challenged, like, you know, hospitals. Why would you have a hospital room when you can do exquisite monitoring of a patient in their own bedroom? Mm. And that's going to happen in the future, and that's going to have a big impact on staffing of hospitals because they'll be more like surveillance centers. Uh, and you'll have, of course, intensive care units and operating rooms and emergency rooms and fancy imaging equipment. But the rest of the hospital, which is like 80% of it, will be gutted. 
And so that's the opportunities that AI brings to this picture. And that's to putting a book about this, you know, to present it to the to the public. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of excitement ahead if we are smart about it. But there's one big liability, my biggest concern, which is that this power is used in the wrong way and by managers and administrators that take this gift of time and, and never let it happen and basically just squeeze more and say, see more patients per unit time, read more scans, read more slides, and on and on. So that's what we have to yeah, make sure right. that mm. happens. Yeah. So I suppose, yeah, the, the greater we can understand it as, as a public as well and books like yours um, to help that will certainly help hopefully direct it in the right direction rather than the wrong direction. Yeah, that's really the, the the biggest challenge we have is not just, you know, privacy, security and, you know, these other technical matters that yeah. I think are ultimately soluble. Uh, the biggest one is, are we going to let this opportunity slip away and possibly, you know, let things get worse? Because if, if you if you can make for more productivity, the bean counters you know, we'll, we'll, we'll like that. And they'll say, oh, good, we can make more money. Hmm. And that's what, of course, has led us down this path of erosion. Yeah, yeah. No, very good. Mate, um, look, the, I'll put the, the links of, of this book, Deep Medicine, and the other books of yours in the show notes. How can people um, best reach out to you and find you? Well, I'm on Twitter, and I post stuff that's interesting uh, along these lines every day. Um, that's the best way. You just Eric Topol at Twitter. Uh, you can reach me by email, uh, etopol at scripts.edu. And um, that's probably the best couple of ways. Okay. Is there a website? Yes. Uh, and it's Scripps Research. Uh, so it's uh, Scripps, uh, see, I don't remember, edu, but. Um, yeah, I'll stick it in the show. That's a pretty short Yeah, no, so. it's, uh, it's with my Twitter handle on that profile. Yeah. Oh, perfect, mate. Well, look, thank you very much, Eric, for coming on the show, and thank you for your time. Appreciate the insight sure. you've given us. Yeah, I enjoyed the conversation. You take care. Fantastic, guys. Check it out at thehiddenwire.com, episode 803, I believe it is. Um, yeah, all the show notes will be there, the links to the books, etc. And uh, thank Eric also for coming on the show. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. You take care. Enjoyed it. That was good, mate. Yeah, thanks Thanks for the time. And, and um, I'll send some links to uh, the release dates, etc. when it's done. That's terrific. All right. Thanks, buddy. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. 
You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Why. My name is Lee Manutzi. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.